You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One other thing that I saw, I went and looked for the original commercial because like mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier, the commercial was one of the first times that Broadway really used TV to get people into right. the theaters. It's still effective, Ken. I watched That's it. That's right. <laughs> And it is you go fantastic. See it. it made you sit up and take notice. You're like, what come is on, this? Come on, he's on town, he's on Well, right away, <laughs> yes. you take one of the best songs ever written and you put that. And then if you, even if you didn't see it, the, the audio of it made you want to sit up and you're take like, notice. Even if you went to the kitchen to go get a snack, you're going to peek around and see what well, on I remember is on the people TV. used to run back to the TV to see it every time Aww. it would play because people wanted to see the commercial. Well, and then it's so smart because it almost immediately cuts to the widest couple you've ever seen just laughing and having the right. time of their lives at the, like they're at Seinfeld. So at, right off the top, they're telling you, you don't have to be black to like this, right? Right. White people can come and see it. But then after that, we see black people in the audience who are enjoying and loving. And at the very end, there's this little black boy sitting on the front row and Toto right. jumps into his arms and he right. hugs him. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, get me my tickets now. It's incredible. Uh, well, it was it was very effective because it really it had something to say. It wasn't just an advertisement. It was also a sociological statement. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are celebrating Black History Month by covering the musical The Wiz with a guest that deserves to be celebrated as well. He's the man, the myth, the legend. Everyone, please welcome Ken Page. Hello, hello, the man, the myth, the legend. Who thought I'd live to hear that? My God. Well... Put it, put it on, put it on, put your, it on, your, on your CV. <laughs> now, Ken, you, uh, I'm just going to really fast read you off your resume. Uh, you originated your role in A Misbehaving on the Broadway. You're, yes. of course, Old Deuteronomy in the film stage version of Cats. Not the movie, right. the film stage version, right. which we love. You're in the movie Dreamgirls. You're nicely, nicely in my favorite cast recording of Guys and Dolls, maybe most well-known to my generation. You're the voice of Oogie Boogie in The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes. 
But real quick, I want to ask you about something that I just found out this morning. You did an episode of Kids Incorporated? <laughs> yes, my Jamaican dance number and everything. I should note also, before we go further, that I was in the original Broadway cast of Cats as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. For sure. 100%. Which is why they invited me back, and it was thousands of years later, and Jillian Lynn said, All right, darling, you come in here and... It's like, and what? It's been 10,000 years. Girl? I don't remember that. <laughs> Elaine Page was the same way. She was like, she thinks we remember, darling. I don't know what she's talking about. You know? That is fantastic. Yes, I'm sorry. I interrupted you, your question. N- no, please. I'm just like, I when I saw that, that was a blast from my past because I grew up watching the Mickey Mouse Club, the new yes. Mickey Mouse Club, of course. And uh, the Kids Incorporated was always right in front of that. So, yeah. man. And, you, you know, it's so interesting because all those kids that were there, of course, they're not kids now. They were so talented, and I did the one episode. What I also did, which you may have seen and not known I was there, is who would have known? Uh, eight, eight or nine episodes of Adventures in Wonderland. Which ah, was, yeah, I was. I the, loved that show. Oh, really? Okay, I was yes. the walrus. Stop it! I know. Like I said, complete rubberhead. Nobody would have oh known my, it was me. But just yeah, all prosthetics. Just. Prosthetics, a go go. Yeah, but it was great. It was wonderful to be part of it because now, of course, they're in infamy. And my dearest friend and sister, Amelia McQueen, was the Red Queen. That's what I was going to say. Like, yeah. talk about a little reunion. Oh, it was so great. It was so great. And she did like a hundred episodes or something. Oh, my and gosh. I only did Legend. Like eight or nine. Yeah, but they're there forever, you know, which is great. And they don't. That is age. a great show. It was a wonderful show. And they did a lot of really detailed work because it was very much geared about some of the uh, scientific information about teaching children and how to include Mm -hmm. certain things. So they were very detailed. You could not miss one word because everything was... um, Was in there for a reason. Yeah, it was carefully selected. So that made That's how I learned... Yeah. No, I was just going to say that's how I learned the definition of the word homonym. Yes. Was because of Adventures in Wonderland. Exactly. And they really did some great episodes... I mean, I, we did what called weed, W-E-E-D, weed shall overcome. And I don't know, oh my. <laughs> that was like Martin Luther King Day. And I don't remember, I don't think Stop it had anything it. to do with weed, but I don't remember what it was about, but I remember the name of the episode, weed shall overcome. Oh my gosh, yeah. I'm going to have to go look that up. Yeah, yeah. Now, before all of that, however, you were also being a cat, uh, because... That's what we get to talk about today. You played the lion in The Wiz on Broadway. Yes, all kinds of big furry things. (laughs) (laughs) So can you take me through what was going on in your life when The Wiz came into your life? Well, actually, I was... uh, I'll start with this because it's kind of the key to The Wiz. I was doing Guys and Dolls on Broadway. And at that time, we had a thing. Now they're called cabaret shows. At mm. that time, they were called nightclub acts, which was hey, like, and yes, in truth, they course. were bigger. They weren't in a small cabaret. They were in this place uh, called Les Mouches, which was actually a big disco, so like Studio 54. And they had a 350, 400 seat room where you did your nightclub act. Like Patti Lapone did. Six yeah, weeks I was going to say and, that's like the famous one that I know is yeah. Patti Lapone's act while she was doing Evita. Exactly. She did a long run thing there, but a lot of people did runs or their act whatever so anyway i did my act there and in my act i did a tribute to all the black shows that were running on broadway at the time and this is circa 1978 and there Mm. were a few uh Mm -hmm. even more a year or two before that but at any rate i did uh you know we did raisin and then i said come on let's ease on down the road to bubbling brown (laughs) sugar i mean it was just cheese you know but (laughs) 
That's but awesome. Smartly, because I had auditioned for the show way back when they first came into town, I did Mino Lion from The Wiz. And this was just in tribute to the shows. I wasn't trying to audition. You weren't auditioning. I right. wasn't, but I was. But at any rate, I figured, well, I'll never probably get to do it, so I might as well do it in my show. Well, as it was at the time, you always, as you still do, get a lot of support from the other shows that are running, and a lot of people came. And among them were a, a, a gaggle, I like to say, of people from The Wiz, one of whom was uh, uh, Clarice Taylor, who played the original Atta Pearl. Hmm. And she went back to the producer, Ken Harper, and said, you really should see, and they knew because I was doing Guys and Dolls, so I was on the, on the radar, you should see sure. him doing The Lion in The Wiz. Because I also sang a piece of Be a Lion. I think I started doing mm. it then. But at any rate, they called and asked me to come in and do the, uh, an audition to go into the show. And that day, I did the audition, and uh, Ken Harper came to the foot of the stage. I tell a lot of stories where a lot of people come to the foot of the stage. But it's what, <laughs> it's what people did. That, That's just what do. Yeah, it's what they did. They came to the foot of the stage, and he says, you were very good. I enjoyed, blah, blah, blah. Clarice was right. Uh, go down and get your measurements. <gasps> and I thought... Was that just information that you need for whatever? You know, I didn't get it. And he was sort of wow. smiling. I mean, I was like looking at him like, why do you need that? I mean, I, but see, I didn't know. I thought maybe they just need to know in case they sure. want to hire you. They need to know that you can fit in. There was things in the show that, which was almost a no fit. This cage that the uh, mouse is, the mice is, 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 picked you up in, and you had to be able to get in it. So I thought maybe that's what they're oh. asking for. Oh, so I went downstairs and they were like, okay, so you're the new lion, right? And I was like, I don't know that, you know? And they're like, oh my gosh. honey, honey, you're the new lion. Come on. And that's <laughs> a foot and a half. And I'm like standing there going, oh my God. So that's how I got in the Wiz. You're like processing the fact you booked the show while they're measuring that you for correct. the costume. That is wow. Correct. I hadn't even called my agent. and They called them. They called them and said, well, he's here. He later told me, uh, he's here. We like him. We're hiring him. He's down getting measured. Let's negotiate. <laughs> so by the time I got home, they had already negotiated my salary and everything, and I'd been measured. And they were like, you're, you're doing rehearsal Monday morning. Well, they are prompt, if nothing else. No Broadway, time wasted. Baby. Come on, you know. <laughs> get to work. Let's get to work. How fantastic. And then how long did you do the show? I did that show for our uh, I think a little under two years. I left at a point and, uh, I, you know, my knees were killing me and all sorts of mm -hmm. injuries that came along with the role, I found out. But Physical, anyway, sure. Oh, my God. And I left and Clarice once again called me on the phone and she said, I just want to tell you they're going to ask you to come back. I said, I am gone. I'm sorry. My knees are in sound sonic treatments and all things. She said, I'm just telling you, you know. And sure enough, I got the phone call. Come back. We want you back. Can you do another please, six months? Wow. Yeah. And I should tell as a footnote here, if I may, because I always like to give him credit. The man that I replaced, yeah. James Wigfall, Jimmy Wigfall, you know, there was a lot of surus and agitic going on for him there at the show. But when they, I, I came in to rehearse, he was so gracious and lovely to me. And people oh. aren't always that way. You know, like, oh, right. you're my replacement. Well, to hell Possessive with you. of my, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah because yeah. he was not leaving. He was asked to leave. And right. it was a little dicey, you know, and he left his post of a lion in the dressing room for me and all that. Well, he came back when I left. So we did this do -si do I oh left. Oh, my gosh. They called him to come back. And then they let him go again. 
<laughs> and then they were like, Ken? Yeah, and I was the one who told him, right? So wow. I go to his dressing room. I said, Jimmy, how are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm fine, baby. How you doing? I said, I'm good. I'm good. I said, so has anybody said anything to you about the show? No, what? <laughs> I said, oh, God. I said, well, listen, I I said, let me tell you this. I said, because I want, if there's something you want to do about it or can, please do, because I want to stay at home. I said, uh, (laughs) they've asked me to come back. What? I said, yes, darling. They've asked me to come back, (laughs) which means we won't be here at the same time. So if there's anything, you know, that you need to discuss with them or anything that could change that for you, I'm telling you so that, you know. And I'll never forget, he hugged me and we cried a little. He says, you know, Aww. like I was saying about him, he goes, how many people would have done that? They'd have been like, bitch, get out. This is my Aww, job. You know, sure, I said, sure. no, I'm not. I don't operate that way. So indeed, he did leave. He did leave. And I did come back in. And that was the way it went from there. But I so in all in all, I did it just a little bit under two years. Wow. Which, you know, Incredible. I think about it now and it feels like it wasn't long. But when you say two years of your life that's a long time to do anything it's a long time but i yeah. guess like any other job if you look at it that way we used to call them a government job on broadway <laughs> i got a government <laughs> job the show is a hit and as long as i can do it i can stay in it which means i can buy the apartment and the house in the country and pay the kids college bills and all that kind of stuff right. because you very seldom get shows that are long-running hits like that where you can actually count on them being there more or less because they're already sold in advance so you know they're not going to close and you can right. you can have a normal life financially but i of course was full of wanderlust and theater dust and all sorts of things so i was like i'm gone i've got to get out you know my knees are hurting me with cats i was like i want to go to hollywood you know so <laughs> <laughs> well i think you found your way just fine uh, uh, maybe it's from uh, easing on down the road so much that you you knew what a, a yellow brick road looked like Exactly. Well, I also, at the time, it was completely possible to foresee doing another show or going into something else or keeping, you know, there was a, there was a landscape to fill. It wasn't like, I, I quit and I don't know what I'm going to do. It was like, sure. well, I've left, but I'm going to LA. Or I've left, so I'm going to wait for the next show. You know, it just goes to show that having faith is as much a part of this business as having talent sometimes because you just have to believe that there will be work that there will be an opportunity to keep being an artist yeah even well, I think, when one thing know, comes to an end absolutely and i think truly that's probably more important because mm. you realize so many people are talented and so many people deserve it and all those other things sure. it comes down to your belief I always tell everybody I speak to, I mean, it always sounds sort of show busy and funny, but when I was in high school and college, I used to sing to myself all the time, don't rain on my parade. Don't mm. tell me not to live just <laughs> it. was so like, you know, I'm, the bow, I'm on the bow of a boat, you know, the whole business. But it became, uh, I'm a Buddhist, I chant, but it became that version of that for me because I really literally did it every day. And I was at the bus stop all the time going to high school and college. And that was how I spent the energy because it was not easy because it was a long route. and We moved further away and on and on. But I every day I stood there and I went, don't tell me not to live. Just say it. But I was getting over and over and over and over and over and over. So when I got to New York, I did the same thing going to auditions and things. I would mm. walk down the street and I'm, you know, I didn't sing it out loud, thank God. But uh, <laughs> I really went into the room singing, nobody, no, nobody is going to yeah. rain on my. So I, had read a book called Psycho-Cybernetics back then, which is now, I'm sure, just the power of positive thinking or the now and all the new books. Sure, the secret. The secret. However, I am a believer in the fact that 
if you don't believe it's possible, it's not possible. Hmm. And it doesn't mean because you believe it's possible, that it's always going to be easy to make it possible. But if you don't believe it's possible, it ain't possible. You know what I mean? Right. It just doesn't. Absolutely. One begets the other. I remember seeing Barbara Streisand, speaking of Dorena McRae, on the actor's studio one night, late at night, and she was talking to the host, I forget his name, but the host. And she said, when you know what you want and you're sure and you put it out into the universe, the universe conspires to answer you. Mm. And I remember that wasn't that long ago, but it struck me because I thought you were on the right track all along. And the very woman, you know, said it. Mm -hmm. And it made perfect sense because I now have many other things that have fed into that philosophy and belief. But uh, in New York, it was called Don't Rain on My Parade. <laughs> you know <what> I, mean? <laughs> I think that's so fantastic. Who would have thunk that, like, talk about a Barbara Streisand full circle, oh, yeah. right? To, to well, you want me to her, finish that circle for you? Yeah, you want me to finish please. that circle for you? New Year's Eve, I want to say it was 1993 or something. A friend of mine, my dear friend, and I don't usually say his name, but I'm saying it now. He needs all the positive energy. Alec Baldwin is a very mm -hmm. dear friend of mine. And he invited me to come with he and his that time wife, Kim Basinger, to Las Vegas to see Barbara Streisand at the MGM Grand. She was making her yes. return to the live. That big concert with the off-the-shoulder black Yes, outfit. that very fabulous <laughs> Donna, Donna Karan, Karan, as some people say, dress yes. that she, of course, doctored herself, you know. She said, well, she sent me one and she sent me the other one. And I thought, why don't we just put them together? And, you know, so. <laughs> but she really looked great and she was just in top form. And I remember sitting there and we were like sixth row center. It was magical. And I thought to myself, I'm finally sitting in front of this woman. And when it went, dun, 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 I thought, you don't, you don't dare cry don't you dare <laughs> let pull it together page. pull it together hold it together but as you said the full circle i thought not only have i believed enough to get where i got to but i believed enough that i'm actually sitting here in front of her oh. which was unbelievable there's more to that but maybe they'll come up with another part of our interview but you know getting to meet her afterwards and all that no i'll tell it now because it was very interesting please skipping you know all kinds of people were in the room it was a very private i don't know how the hell we got in her son's a friend and he took us backstage and you know alec was alec kim was kim but myself and my again my dear amelia mcqueen was with me yeah and, and, yeah and in the room was corinna scott king marilyn allen bergman donna karen uh, uh virginia kelly bill clinton's mother this oh my gosh, and it was new the year's VIP eve of it all. So, and i'm saying it because it was way out of my reach i mean it was just like and they were there and it was New Year's Eve. And my dear Amelia, she says, 12 o'clock comes and everybody's milling and talking. She says, isn't anybody going to sing? And people are like, sing what? What are you talking about? And she goes, well, it's 12 o'clock. It's New Year's. And they went, of course. And Marvin Hamlish, who I forgot, goes to the piano and goes, gling, 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 gling. And I'm standing there thinking, am I having a hallucination? Am I on, <laughs> am I having a flashback or something? It was unbelievable. So when Miss Streisand came out and they're introducing uh, people, you know, and so forth. And, you know, of course, the rest of the people in were her intimate friends and Alec and Kim. And she says, oh, so she Kim a little shade. She said, Kim, Basinga, Basinga, what is your name? And I thought, oh. There we go now. So when she got to me, I thought, don't gush, don't be ridiculous, because you're in this room and you know these are her per you I don't know how you got in here, but you're in here. So I thought, what can you say to her to uh including what I had just said about her 
rendition of Darren and my parade was my theme that got me energy, theme song. everything. Yeah. And I thought, just say, thank you. Just say, thank you. So when she shook my hand and, you know, Alex said, this is my friend, this is my friend, Ken Page. And she goes, hi, how are you? I said, thank you. And I looked her in her eyes, which was hard enough. It was like looking into you. I yes. said, thank you. And at first she went, you're welcome. And then she looked at me a little more. And she says, you're welcome. Oh. And I thought, <laughs> she got it. But she got it. Exactly. She yeah. got it. But that's my full circle on Darren and my parade wow. and being determined to yes. uh, get there, if you will, with many roads in between, needless to say. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there were a few <laughs> turns. Yeah. A few yellow that's brick so, roads. Right. Well, that's so sweet. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, sure. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now, before we get to the whiz, I want to lead up to it by doing a very brief summary of Black musical theater right after the Golden Age. So starting with 1968, right, looking at musicals that were trying to represent the black experience in this country. And Ken, you have already touched on some of these. The thing is, with all of these shows, as important as they were, they were all pretty much produced and written by white people. And The Wiz was the first show to change that. Listeners, for the record, I would love to do episodes about any of these musicals. Please hit me up and let me know which ones you'd like to hear. So first up, Hallelujah Baby, which is technically 1967, right before 1968. Julie Stein wrote it post-Gypsy. It makes Leslie Uggams a star, but it closes pretty quickly. Not a huge hit. But between the time it closes to the time the Tony Awards happen in 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated and the Civil Rights Act goes into effect, which includes the Fair Housing Agreement, which just so happens to be incredibly relevant to the plot of Hallelujah Baby. So, and I'm not saying this is the only reason why, but Hallelujah Baby wins the Tony Award for Best Musical in 1968, even though it had already closed months before and was up against shows that were still running. So everything that goes down in 1968 makes everyone realize how pioneering that show was. Then we can probably go to Pearly in 1971, which is about a black charismatic preacher who saves a congregation in the South during like the Jim Crow era. And I feel like every six months or so, a musical theater fan will find footage of Melba Moore singing I Got Love from the show and will post it like, is this maybe the best singer that has ever lived? It's amazing. Uh, after that, we go to Raisin in 1974, which you mentioned, Ken. And it's a, a musical version of Raisin in the Sun, the famous play by Lorraine Hainsbury. There's some really beautiful stuff in there. It wins Best Musical, um, I believe, in 1974. Now, 
I guess my question here, Ken, is what was going on in this time? Can you provide any context for us about what led to the momentum of these quote-unquote black musicals being written? Because I know what it's like now. I got Twitter and I got social media and all of these things that are forcing conversations in the spotlight without necessarily really doing anything, but they're at least bringing the focus there. What what was going on in this time? Why suddenly this wave? Well, I think the first thing I would say, truthfully, before you even are specific to The Wiz, is that, I mean, this is it's terrible to have to say this, but it's true. New York City was going through a very hard time. I mean, now, you know, right. historically, they talk about it was a downturn and this and that. And Broadway was part of that downturn. Sure. So the idea of producing or having, allowing, quote unquote, Black shows was almost, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people agree with this, it was a way of saving Broadway because it brought forth shows that people, they were very entertaining and so on and so forth, but it brought Broadway back up. Now, mind you, at the same time, there was Chorus Line in Chicago and Pippin sure. and there was some of these other, but there was, a, there was, I think, like eight shows, I want to say, uh, circa 1970, I'm going to say seven rather than six. The Wiz opened in 75. That was unprecedented. Usually there might have been one or two shows a season, possibly, mm. even mm-hmm. maybe less every other season. To have right. nine shows that were black themed, as you said, probably directed by white people, but black themed, running on Broadway was a phenomenon. And it was yeah. written about, I'll never forget the New York Times headline one day. It said, the great white way is now black, <laughs> which is like, <laughs> you know. Maybe, I don't even know how I feel about that title. Well, I think what headline. they meant was, to be the most sure. specific, is all the hit shows, all the shows that are making money were black shows. So what had right. been called, quote unquote, the great white way, there were so many black shows, it was now being coined the great black way. Sure. Um, without any prejudice or anything like that. I right. Think. And, and so, do, so, so, and correct me if I'm wrong here, yes. but it sounds like you're saying that, okay, Bye Bye Birdie isn't cutting it anymore. We got to get people to fill the seats. And the more, the more bankable product was black entertainment. Right. And again, remember, we're talking 1970 something through, through 80, maybe on the stretch. Right. Why, you know, why our shows were doing so well then, I'm not exactly sure, but it brought, if nothing else, to some degree, especially with The Wiz, it brought another audience to Broadway that hadn't really been there. Amen. So that alone is why, let's just look at The Wiz, why The Wiz was such a huge hit, because they didn't depend on the quote unquote Broadway general usual audience to be a hit. The trajectory of The Wiz is they open. Broadway predicted they wouldn't run. It's not good. It's going to close. And Ken Harper, whose idea the whole thing was, he was a radio. He was guy. a disc jockey. He was like a, a disc jockey. DJ. Right. And he had the idea, as you know, to do it and so on and so forth. But he went to the black churches. I think he went to 20th Century Fox and had money in the mm-hmm. show and said, finance a commercial, as you know, which is the Wiz and Pippin were really the first two TV commercials for Broadway. Um and it just turned around. All those churches from Brooklyn, Stephanie Mills belonged to one of the biggest churches in Brooklyn. And they, hello, and they came by the busloads. And let's face it, money is the generator. So once the yeah. people were there and started coming, and then in reaction to that, it just, just to make sure we note that the audience was already there because mm. the Black audience was showing up. 
then the Broadway general audience and the tourists da, 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 got the all idea. of a sudden they got the message that this show yeah. is good. It's not closing. It's a hit by standards of business. And then everybody started coming and realized the show is great. What were they talking about? Right. Wow. And then, of course, they always talk about the arc of it culminating, I think, in it getting 11 Tony Award nominations or something and winning Huge. Best Musical. And winning best, best score, musical. less blah, 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 blah. And Absolutely. that's a long way from the closing notice going up. Literally closing notice going up the day after the reviews come out. Right. Because there's no way that this is going to stay open. Exactly. And then all they had, all you had to do was survive the financial stresses of staying open for word of mouth to travel. Sure. I mean, this this musical is the word of mouth musical. It, of all time. History. And I think that's always the case. But with a black show, there weren't as many people concerned about whether it was going to run or not. It's like, well, they got there. Mm. That's enough. Next. You know. Sure. But Ken sure. Harper uh, was determined. And I think, thank God, and we all now can say he was right, that this was a great piece of theater musical theater and he knew that it could run if it just could get to the people and by the people the first people was the african-american black audience if it could get to them they would support and come to the show and again reiterating this is new for uh broadway you know you'd have a black show but the audience was still predominantly white you know right Uh, but with the whiz not only was the creatives mostly with the exception of bill brown William F. Brown. Who wrote the book. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, African-American. But the audience that made the show run and made it a hit was African-American. So it was a new phenomenon from A to Z, you mm-hmm. know, and it made people go, oh, well, I guess there is an audience, you know. And mm-hmm. I'll just say as a footnote, not to digress, but when we did Guys and Dolls, which was after The Wiz, you know, kind of in a sense, maybe a little bit of a throwback because Hello Dolly had been done with an all black cast. And then you have Guys and Dolls, which is considered by many to be the quintessential American musical. And then you're doing this with a black cast. Well, the whiz had happened already by then. So the idea of definition of culture had changed. So when Guys and Dolls came along, there was this big controversy about why are they doing Guys and Dolls? And some of it was from, really? yeah, oh, sure. Well, because, you know, The Wiz was there. So why don't they just do their own show, you know? Um, Interesting. But the point with Guys and Dolls was simply exactly what it was. We can do anything. It was still Guys and Dolls, except it was with Black people, wow. which was part of the controversy because it, how much do you do? How much do you change? How much do you stay in the idiom of uh, Damon, Runyon? Damon Runyon? And, you know, of course, the book writers and so forth, which basically was a New York Jewish idiom. How do you marry the two? But Billy Wilson, like Ken Harper, it was his concept and his idea that if we just be us in it, that will change what it says That's to enough. the audience, you know? And then, of course, as you know, there were things that came along, like my fortune to get to do sit down, you rock in the boat, and them adding a gospel addendum to the number, which gave it which more. Which makes perfect sense. Well, it was a gospel number. That's why we say to people yeah. now, they're like, well, I didn't they made it. I said, wasn't it always a gospel number? It was Am I... always, brothers yeah. and sisters. It let's was in the this. Save Us All mission, for Christ's sake. <laughs> You know, uh, not to to use Christ's name. uh, In the church. uh, In the church. I mean, come on. It was always a gospel number. And I always felt myself personally, not to get too far off the whiz, but I always felt like that was uh, uh, Frank Lesser's version of what would be a gospel number by Black people. 
you know, or even if you want to stretch it and say white Southern gospel, you know, but it really was an attempt at what would have been a number about Black people doing gospel. So when we did it, it made perfect sense as it was allowed by the group, the, the Lesser Foundation, which believe me, they didn't want you to change a note. Not a single note. Not I'm a sure. single note. They were, the man sat there with the score in front of us in rehearsal, literally, literally alongside wow. god rest her joe sullivan lesson they sat there and you couldn't change a note wow and you thought wow, wow, wow. okay we're getting but i guess they were saying well you can do it but we're not allowing you to change it into your thing it's gonna right. be this our, isn't your show this isn't your show this is our show and we're gonna let you do it but the story you know of course what's down your rock the boat is first they changed the last four bars from sound your rock and down sit down sit down you're rocking the boat you know the usual and they yeah. went and then I will drag you under, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat, which isn't on the album, by the way, they cut oh, right okay. to the, they went right to the encore. And that got everybody like, oh yeah, here we go. We're going to do a gospel black. And they kept applauding, but there was nothing else. <laughs> that was it you know and it was like we'd sit there like that's all we got folks you know <laughs> and eventually the conversations were had about well they're asking for more to the yes. lesser people to everybody why don't we try to find a way to give them what they're asking for would frank be so insulted by that would it be so they allowed them to write that encore which was based on a gospel song that howard roberts god rest him our musical director knew and that's what he based it on and of course, as you know, the story goes, it went and took the roof off and so on and so forth. But it was the part of the show leading back to The Wiz that was the most um, identifiable to our culture within the show itself. The arrangements also- No mistake. You, yeah. No mistake, you know, that that would then be the thing that takes the roof well, off. Well, it allowed us to sort of peek through the wall, you know. The arrangements, as you know from the album, uh, were changed. The arrangements were mm -hmm. the thing that saved us because, mm -hmm. you know, instead of I'll know, and he goes, Yeah, chemistry. Yeah. I know. It's like, Yes, you know. Oh my gosh, I'm living. <laughs> Little changes like that made it be for us what the whiz had been. Mm. Right? And that's mm -hmm. as far, I mean, that's on two totally different ends of the stick. However, with the whiz, it absolutely, because it was also contemporary. It just pulsed with the energy and the consciousness of Black America that was coming into this full fruition at the beginning of the 70s, born out of the 60s. So for Broadway, yeah. which, of course, in that sense, was behind, frankly, the Wiz. We always came, are. Yeah, because it's the, you know, the last frontier. It takes so long so, to freaking get a theater show up and running. I mean. All of that. And the mentality, let's face it, be honest, the mentality Absolutely. of the people who were in charge, they weren't feeling that. It was like, Broadway's fine. You know, we don't need to. Yeah. So as you we were talking about the idea that black shows were were revenue mm. yeah. and the whiz was sort of at the top because it was the contemporary voicing of where we were at that time. Beautiful. You know? Yeah. Do you know, I mean, that's history. It you know what history. I mean? When we talk about how to tell, talk about history, teach history, any of those sorts of uh, nuanced perspectives on who we are as a society. I just find it incredible that maybe there is like a, a dark capitalistic underbelly behind some of the movement. And yet also at the same time, look how beautiful. 
You know, oh, well, you know, it, look, it's we're both. in America and money's always yeah. going to be the bottom line. I don't care what anybody says. I mean, you want it, sure. you can believe that 80% of it may be something else, but at the end, it's still going to be about whether it sells or not. It's just the right. way it is, you know, and I mean, that's not right. a judgment of whether it's right or wrong. No. It's just the way it is. Um, but I wanted to say something else while we're on the subject before we move on Please. to some of the creative. It's a very interesting thing to me. And I, for a long time, I didn't speak about it a lot because I thought, well, I don't want people to have sour grapes, but now I don't care. <laughs> I, had a, <laughs> I had a birthday this last week. Uh, Yay. Yeah. Thank you. It's interesting that the whiz, which many people have tried to revive, as you know, they never recreate that creative uh, energy. Nope. It's the most careful way I can say it. It's always Mm -hmm. the white director or it's the white choreographer. Or you want to say, why would you not want to go to now? There's been exceptions clearly Mm -hmm. now. The TV was was done by Kenny Leon and we did it. They did it at the Muni and uh, Camille Brown choreographed it. But it's always I just never understand why it seems to be. I do. Of course, understand. But you want to say this is the, the the ultimate version of what Black people had to say about themselves at a time in a way that was popular and all these other things. Why do you keep going to people who don't know what the cultural touch points in it are to recreate it? I said to someone who should remain nameless, I said, look, to you, it's a hit show that has great music and it's fun and that terrible word I hate, it's sassy. You know, all those things. I said, look, the deal is this. It wasn't just popular because of those things. It was popular because we recognized those cultural uh, icons in a sense, or certainly uh, we knew who the lion was. We knew that guy. The way it was uh, re-envisioned was genius. And yet it was still exactly what it had been as far as the overall intention and so forth. Dorothy was every little black girl, you know? Uh, uh, the Tin Man was that guy who's, you know, all the things they ever were, but they were refiltered through our culture. And a lot of times when people try to do the show, they don't tap into that. Instead of going to level three, they go to level two or level one. And you want to say there's other things there that make it have depth. It's not just a fun, popular kick it, kick it show. It has other things that are part of it. If yeah. you don't mind those things, the show doesn't have the same impact. Now, that's not to say it can't be good and done and so forth without all of that. Entertaining. Yeah, of course. But I guess when you think about it in the vernacular we're talking about, it's more important than just being entertaining. It always was. And now to take that other away from it, it seems to me to take something away from what Ken Harper intended, what all of those people worked so hard for. It's like when they did the revival of Porgy and Bess, they did the opposite, which was let's Mm. get rid of all of the idiom that was put in there by people who were writing about people who weren't themselves. And let's try to get to the core of who these people are being themselves, you know? And there was a lot of controversy, as you know, about that. Well, that's what they wrote. And that's what they, it's like, yeah, well, that's true. Changing the notes. Don't change the notes. Well, don't change the notes. (laughs) Don't change, you know? And my God, is Porgy and gorgeous? Of course it is. But you're representing people that, deserve to at least at some point in history tell you who they are in this not just who you think they are yeah and that becomes the core and the whiz is one of those things where we from the beginning and from the beginning when i wasn't even there certainly it was a show that said this is who we are and we're telling you we're not doing it for you we're doing it I don't want to say in spite of you, but we're doing it and you can participate there's no you certainly are welcome to join but it isn't about you Generally, when shows were done with a black uh, uh, 
cultural story, narrative, whatever, because Broadway was what it was, they were still being done for the white audience. Yeah, it's how do we fit these people into the white yeah, yeah. world. And I always say, don't forget that it was the Wizard of Oz. You know, it wasn't a story that was written that was totally new. It was the Wizard mm-hmm. of Oz, which is our only really American fairy tale. So it's a playing core, with something that is incredibly ingrained into every person that's incredibly been ingrained. Everybody. Ever gone to the movies since 1930. Right? Every Easter <laughs> on TV, people who really, you know, I mean, I that's how I ever saw it. I didn't see it at the movies. Every right. Easter it was like NBC in living color mm. brings you <laughs> the Wizard of Oz, you know. Of and for course. the longest of time, I never saw it in color. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> oh, well, there were no color televisions. Sure. So yeah. Dorothy goes to Dorothy goes to Oz and it uh, looks could, yeah. strangely similar to Kansas. It's better scenery. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's basically what happened. <laughs> so the first time I saw it in color, I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is a oh, whole so other, this is what it is. This is what it is. And then finally, years later, I saw it at the movie theater, which was amazing. But the Wizard of the Wiz took that and, like I said, re-envisioned it in our uh you know, the Wicked Witch of the West, okay, we know who that, but seeing her as Eveline, we knew that woman. Mm-hmm. We knew that woman. Woo! Did we ever, you know? And it was a it was a fond representation. It wasn't done yes. with a mean spirit. But we knew who that woman was. Like she says, I'm evil with everybody today. You knew who that was. <laughs> it was like, don't bring me no bad news. You know? And I remember people, even when I did it, which was already a year or two in here, there were things in the singing and in the lyric that people were like, yes, I mean, my goodness, you know, when I wake up in the afternoon, which it pleases me to do, don't nobody bring me no bad news. I mean, people would just be slapping that thought like, yes, I know who that is because I'm evil with everybody, you know. <laughs> so it just has so many, uh, it resonated in so many ways, but I'm gone and I'll let you ask some questions. Maybe I can no, no, that's some. fantastic. I actually want to possibly go a little more specific into mm-hmm. some of those examples. But in preparation for this episode, I watched, I found a bootleg. Forgive me. I'm now completely open about the fact that I watch bootlegs. I used to like hide it on the, on the podcast. Cause I felt ashamed. I'm like, you, you guys, I can't. I watched anymore. it. It's just, so I watched me. it. Call I'm a lawyer sorry. and sue me. thank you frank lesser so uh i watched the 80s revival yeah there's a bootleg of the revival from the early 80s that played broadway for like 13 performances stephanie mills was still playing dorothy which by the way how tall is that woman she she looks like she's 410 uh i think that's just about right is she that tiny oh she is no she really is that tiny yeah and i mean the biggest voice to ever come out of a well that was part of it wasn't when she did the show i think she was 15 or 16 so she by law could have been that little but she's sure. that but she really is that little. but she actually just is that but little. that voice my god i think one of the keys and i mean many many young ladies have done it and they've done it well but there was something about her voice as it was with judy if you will singing over the rainbow there was something truly innocent about her at that time that connected through her vocal Mm. Her voice shimmered. Mm. I always say to people, I said, sitting on stage with her singing Be a Lion, there were times when I just thought, good Lord, you know. And some like us all on Broadway, there were times when you just sang the song and got through the moment sure. went on. And then there were other times when she would, you, I could tell when she would sit on the ground next to me and she'd look at me and she would just sort of start stroking my friend. I thought, uh-oh, uh-oh, we're going there, there today, you know. 
it's and one she, of those. Oh, it's one of those. And she would just, I say in my show, she would open her mouth and it was like the voice of an angel. Hmm. And that had a lot to do with why the show was so successful. It wasn't, you know, like I said, other women did it and they did it well. Gail Turner, who was her cover, uh, did a, did the show a lot at that time. And I learned the show with her and she was wonderful. I'm sure. But as we know, there was something about Stephanie that just informed the whole thing. She was Dorothy. Is, is it, yes, absolutely. Couldn't yeah. agree more. Yeah. And skipping ahead, of course, mm-hmm. to how, what, how the show goes, but... There's this one girl singing home, and that's the ending of the show. Yes. And I was like watching this bootleg and like full five tissue cry. Oh, it's, it's, and it never, and it, I could tell you, it never failed. And it was because not only is it a great song, which I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll talk about, but it was because her connection to it was so real. And I mean, mm-hmm. you understand, you saw it in 1980. Real. When I did it with her, this is 1974. 76, 77. You saw her in 1980. She wasn't a and, little girl anymore. But right. the idea. And still pulling it out. Well, pulling it I out from even a different imagine. place. Even. Sure. Sure. You know, and she did a recording on one of her albums where she prefaced with the idea that so many people from the Wiz had died from AIDS and wow. other things, but basically from AIDS. And she says, now this song reminds me of all my beautiful friends who accompanied me on my road on the Yellow Brick Road. When I think of home, and I mean, my God, it's a whole other level of realization in her singing it, you know. It's also a voice that sounds like nobody else. Nobody else. Which I love those voices. Oh, my God. The closest thing to Stephanie's voice, because it was her idol, was Diana Ross. But Mm. we all know that Diana Ross had none of that projection and and, and vocality, I like to call it. But the (laughs) timbre and where she started with her voice was because she loved Diana Ross. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Sla- isn't it interesting? Well, <laughs> she knew that. I mean, she knew, you know, well, as Stephanie says, I kept wondering why she kept coming to see the show over and over. <laughs> it's like, well, now we know, don't we? Uh, but at any rate, um, there's something about what she did in The Wiz that if anybody saw it, it sticks in their mind. You know, I can't believe, and I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school. She's six, she's in her 60s now. And her voice still has that quality. When Because she, she played she played Auntie M in The Wiz Live and sounded yes, phenomenal. Phenomenal. She sounds phenomenal. Amazing. And, and to me, she was one of the most, I will say this to be positive, one of the most right things about that was that she was there and her real, but again, her realization of what she was singing was at a different level yeah. than some of the other people. You want to say, do you all know what you're singing about? Do you even get it? Yeah. Yeah. But she got you. it because she knew what it was. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, let's talk about some of the creatives that were behind yes. this casting. So obviously we talked about Ken Harper and his journey into turning this idea into a reality. He uh, hires a director who then gets fired out of town in Baltimore and right. his replacement Gilbert Moses. Mm-hmm, and his replacement is none other than, I mean, is this the most talented person that has ever lived? <laughs> uh, as far as I'm concerned, he was my hero and my mentor and I just love and adore him still. Certainly we're, did then, Jeffrey. We're talking about Jeffrey, Jeffrey Holder, Holder. Yes. Yeah. 
Jeffrey Holder, who was first discovered by freaking Agnes DeMille herself, like, right, you know, right. the original choreographer of Oklahoma, saw him dancing uh, in his homeland of Trinidad. Trinidad, yeah. And he comes to New York. He is not only a dancer, which he, he does. He does House of Flowers, which is a kind of a pioneering show. Right. In Broadway history, as well as uh, a lot of film and opera. But then he becomes the director, also does the costuming, and is not only the first guy to be nominated for Tonys for both directing and costume design, but he's also the winner. Right. As he deserved to be. I mean, what a creative, incredible individual. Absolutely. And I happened to see The Wiz in Detroit. I was there doing children's theater oh, at really? the time. Wow. I was doing Huckleberry Finn on tour with Fanfare Children Ensemble. Oh, and was it Detroit? And I may have said Baltimore, but was it actually Detroit? No, no, it was in Detroit and Baltimore. It oh, okay. okay. Places. Cool. But it was at the Fisher, at this time, it was at the Fisher Theater in, in uh, Detroit. And I say that because I think it was before Jeffrey took over as director, looking at everything else he did and does and all the things. He brought a certain whimsy to the show that wasn't there before because the costuming was a lot of the voice of what you saw, right? No, it, it is and, the, that kinetic energy that is nonstop yeah. throughout the whiz. And also, I think him being someone of a Caribbean descent, it added a freedom that we didn't have as American, African-Americans, that glory of color and all those things that they have in their culture that's part of their everyday culture. We didn't necessarily have that. The patchwork and textiles of all of the yeah, different the te- you know, and the big hair with all of like, like I, I always think of Adipearl, like the best, one of the best costumes in the entire show, right? That, absolutely. That like dress absolutely. with all of the stuff stuck in her hair. It's right. uh, We look back on it now and call it the beginning of Afrofuturism. Yeah. Well, that again wasn't new. We got into braiding because all the all those wigs actually were braids, but they were like on wires. Oh Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what they were. They didn't maybe look like from the but they were all braided hair, if you will. But they were on wire and things like that. So when you saw them, it just because we didn't have any context, people weren't really wearing braids then yet. Right. Not really. But it was an African tradition, obviously, and it was certainly a Caribbean tradition already. So what he did is he incorporated that into the look. Each one of the witches has the same hair. It's just through their character. It's the same with Glinda. Her uh, wig, if you will, it's all braids on on wire, you know, Mm. uh, say with Atta Pearl, with uh, uh, Eveline. And that wasn't something we had seen, but it was part of his culture. Yeah, it wasn't unusual for him. You know. And also, the makeup itself was so unusual too. It, right. it was futuristic, but also felt almost is tribal an offensive word? I don't know. No, of course. Well, I would say it was African derivative, therefore mm. tribal. Sure. Yeah, because all of that was part of Jeffrey's uh, voicing, African mask making, and 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 face painting is a very very deep cultural tradition in the African culture so it wasn't strange again it was that we don't do that and we weren't necessarily connected to it but he brought it all into the whiz which made it have a cultural identity that was very very deep Mm. and very uh uh, anchored that's beautiful let's talk about george Faison. yes who was the choreographer when i found how much dance was in jeffrey holder's background I was mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, I'm surprised that maybe he wasn't just choreographer as well. But obviously, 
I mean, George Faison is a, a legend in the right. choreography. Did they collaborate well? Do you know or think? Well, I don't know, but I because remember he wasn't the original director. Sure. But I can say that Jeffrey, being a choreographer, I would imagine, and then becoming the, being the director, it had to give more understanding to George's voice. That's true. And contribution, almost Not making more space for it. I would think so because Jeffrey was used to telling story through choreography. So mm. if you have someone like George who is so brilliantly creative and someone like Jeffrey who was so visual and understanding of the choreographic voicing of anything, you had to come up with more. I don't know yeah. where the line was drawn and when sure. things became what they were, but I would venture to say there might've been other directors who would not have understood some of the, because a lot of what, again, you see the yellow brick road is a choreographic concept. So a director right. allowing a choreographer to take something that's as important as the yellow brick road is in the whiz wizard of Oz slash and turn it into a choreographic humanized entity yeah. was brilliant. I will never Amazing. forget many times, many nights when she and, and Adipro would say, you just have to follow the yellow brick road. And they would do that step that they would do out of the wings. And there they were with the canes and the yellow, you know, yes. long coattailing. And the people would go, oh, my God. And they would applaud <laughs> because you realize the yellow brick road is not some linoleum on the floor that she's going to follow. They go with her the whole day. So, again, it's a choreograph. It's a choreographer's concept. Right. And they are constantly um, moving throughout the show. Like they are. Oh, yeah. They are part of the scene. So much of this show is choreographed. And I mean, I also went through the script as I was going mm -hmm. uh, as I was watching this this bootleg and all of this stuff isn't scripted out right no so it's not just at all it's just this layering and layering of creativity and storytelling well, I mean, and you know and what as you know from seeing the bootleg and this again was the 80 version i don't know how much changed but sure. they did it all in this beautifully robotic movement but they were constantly it was like they were her companions as much as the four friends the yellow brick road, which it is in the oh, story. She's that on just gave me the, the yellow brick road. The profound thought that the, the, the path is as much a, our companion as Ab the, the path. as the people who would join us. Let's get it. The path is the companion. Yeah. You know, the people come in and out and they go, the path never leaves you. Exactly. Right. Ooh. And that's what I think was so bril brilliant and beautiful is they never left her. Mm. The only time they leave, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, there's times when you don't see them, obviously, because sure. she gets to the Wicked Witch and so forth. But the beauty of their presence and protection of Dorothy is so gorgeous, which I'm going to reiterate again. You go back and you say, let people do this show. And I am talking of myself. <laughs> let people do this show who know what it is. Mm. They, they get all of these different things that you can reinterpret it and do. It doesn't have to be a carbon copy. Yeah. But if you're not thinking about that, you're missing so much of what the show is, not just what's on the page. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm so grateful you're doing this with me, because I think on some level we're providing people with that sort of wisdom and, and understanding or at least desire to go out and seek it for themselves, you know? Well, sure. And I mean, and you look, we, we, it's this show, if you're black, you're going to get more out of it because it's for you. But mm -hmm. if you're white, it doesn't mean you won't get it, yes. you know? Everybody has a home. 
of some sort, even if it's only in their mind, they have a home. And when, as we know from the Wizard of Oz, when she clicks her heels and says, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. Well, what the Wiz did was say what home is, Mm. as opposed to just saying, go home. It said, this is what home is. It's a place where there's love overflowing. And everybody, I think, always reacts to that song in the same way, because it, it, it gives voice to something we all probably feel, at least hope we had, even if we didn't have, and it defines it. And I would dare say that because in The Wiz, right off the bat, we see that Auntie M is amazing, right? Yeah. <laughs> she may be discipline, a disciplinarian and she and, and Dorothy may butt heads, but she well, she's truly loves it, <laughs> right? Because she's doing things, but she, I've truly, got stuff to do. <laughs> but she truly loves this girl, right? Right. And what's really awesome, I think, about The Wiz is that even if that's not your story, even that, even if that wasn't this story, that doesn't make what Dorothy learns at the end any less powerful. Like if she came Absolutely from a broken not. home and still learned this lesson about what home is, it would still be as effective. Absolutely. And there's also the idea, if you want to go into that, that you remember that that's Aunt M. That's not her mother. Right. It's not like she's coming from this. You know? Ideally, yeah. So whatever that story backstory is as to how she got to be with her aunt and uncle, Mm -hmm. there's a whole thing there, you know. And what she's saying, you know, uh, the feeling we once had. Look, don't ever lose that. Don't lose the feeling we once had, which, in idea, is connected to when she says, "Home, ah, where there's love of, you know, that's what I came from." Aunt M called it. She called it. Absolutely. And I would always come down from my dressing room to watch the feeling we once had into the tornado. Those were my two things I would, because it was, of course, before I came in. But I always thought, again, because again, in the Black culture, so many people going back decades and, and generations were raised by people other than their own parents, for all kinds of reasons. So it resonated in a certain kind of way, because I know so many people raised by their grandparents, by their aunt and uncles, back generations because the parents were gone or they couldn't be there. They had to work. But I loved that moment so because it talked about, I may not show you all the time, but it doesn't mean I don't love you. Yeah. You know, and that's what makes it such a thing to come back to on the other end, I think. Well, here we are talking about these songs and we haven't even talked about amazing Charlie Smalls yet. Um, Who was the composer? He has an incredible story, a a music prodigy as a child. He went to Juilliard to study music at literally age 11. Right, right. I don't know, some of this I don't know, yeah. He attended Juilliard at age 11, stayed there for like seven years, right? Because (laughs) he had to grow up somewhere, but at least it was around other geniuses. And um, he became a composer, started writing, you know, popular songs, but then, uh, I mean, The Wiz really is one of his biggest works because, unfortunately, he passes away at age 43 after having a, an appendix surgery. Like, it's right. a really tragic. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so glad that he got an early start because otherwise we wouldn't have been able to get as much from, uh, from this great mind. Right. And shout out to him because truly the, the amount of black composers that we have in musical theater is embarrassingly low. But I think that the score to the Wiz is one of the great examples of why it matters. Because I love 
so many white composers, but there's no way they could have written the score. There's no way. Right. There... Well, it comes from a complete understanding of who these people were. Again, re-envisioned. When he sings, when the Scarecrow sings in the show, I was born the day before yesterday. I mean, there's a whole other level of, that's being said. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. 100%. There's a lot of things being said, you know? Well, let's talk the... about let's talk about some of these uh, things that are being said. So uh, you mentioned earlier that each person represents kind of a, a, a facet or an experience so when we look at the scarecrow who, like you said, at, right at the beginning of the song, he says, I was born the day before yesterday. Not yesterday. I wasn't born yesterday. I was born right. the day before uh, yesterday. What are we talking about here with him? Because he, during the song, he tells us that he was put up there, right? right. That he seemed like, it seems like he was down on his luck. He didn't have anything going for him. And so he thought being a scarecrow would be a good idea. And lo and behold, now he's just stuck up there with right. straw for brains and doesn't know how to get his way out. Right. So can you draw us a little parallel for what you think that might be representing? Well, I think, you know, without, because again, I always like to say it is the Wizard of Oz. It's still the, the Wizard of Oz. Was always, you know, the Scarecrow was always full of straw and he was always trying to get his brains in that. But for going sure. back to the original story, which of course resonates more for anyone from an African-American cultural reality he was the most intelligent of all of them because he always had it from common sense he wasn't necessarily educated and he wasn't necessarily schooled if you will mm -hmm. but he was the smartest one because he had the innate ability he knew things that he didn't have to learn from school right, right. and i think if you put that in the vernacular of african-american experience amen i mean come on for how long did we not get to learn at school and right. yet people were brilliant People invented things and thought of things and survived and did all these things. But I know, I know I'm going to make it this time. Once again, the faith, right? Like even Absolutely. beyond all of those accomplishments or, or things that you can brag about is this undying hope. And I love it that he says, can you feel my spirit? He mm. doesn't say, can you see how smart I am? Can you mm. feel my spirit? Can you feel my spirit? Hey, you know, and that's yes. what we're talking about. So that's the parallel I see. Because I have spirit, which is how we've survived. Oof. If it wasn't for our spirit, we'd have been gone a long time ago. But our spirit, <laughs> our spirit is what kept us going. So that's what I see as a parallel with him, you know. Wow. Let's talk about the Tin Man real quick, where... The, uh, an evil witch put a, a, a curse on his axe. And so right. as an axeman, he kept like chopping things, but then he would accidentally chop off his own limbs. Right. And so little by little, his body got replaced until finally he's Metal this- Metal parts, yeah. Yeah, until he's finally tin this man. man of tin and feels like he doesn't have a heart. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So we were talking about the Tin Man. And mm-hmm. I think one of just the most beautiful parts of the show is that the Tin Man doesn't have a heart. And yet the most soulful, most emotional song in the show is his. I mean, the, yeah. the beginning chords of that of that gorgeous song what's it called um uh, what i do if i could feel what, what i do yeah i mean the minute that song starts you, you feel it in your heart in your soul yeah i was very fortunate you know when i was there tiger haynes the original tenman was still there and there was something and this may be a little bit to what we're talking about that it wasn't just the tin man but it was an older man oh know? interesting because tiger at the time was in his I want to say he was probably in his 60s, maybe. Really? I had no oh, yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah. He was a much older gentleman. But, of course, he was a tap dancer and all the things sure. that uh, uh, was there. But he was older. And something about it being this older man who had been stuck in this place all that time, mm. who then sang, you know, never mind slide some oil to me, which was, of also, was, was funnier because he was older. <laughs> Yeah. Like, please, I need some I lubrication. You're like, yeah, I dig it, Daddy. You know? <laughs> but um, uh, what I, would I do if I could feel it? It was always so beautiful because from him, it came straight from the heart, as it did with many other ten men, men who played the role. But there was something about him being older. Nobody who did it, at least while I was there or any company I knew of, was ever at his age range. They were mm. always younger. Um, and that did add something to it. Yeah. That's really beautiful. I love that. I had never considered how age plays into these different characters because we think of them as being, you know, fantastical, yeah. you know. Right, so. right, right. I think it does. I mean, I don't know if it was intentional or not. I, I'm sure because I doubt very many things are not in casting, but mm-hmm. I think it did play into it because uh, the scarecrow is young, mm. which is why I think making him the first friend Dorothy finds in The Wiz. They had more in common because they were both kind of young people. Oh, same outlook. Yeah, same outlook, you know. That's and, great. Um, and the Tin Man, being the older of all of them, was wise hmm. on top of He knew that if you have heart, you can do anything. Hmm. If you have heart, you can think differently. If you have heart, you can have courage. And if you have heart, you can always go home, right? Ooh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Love that. All right, so let's talk about the lion, which I mean, yes. you know, you know pretty well. Well, I guess I do. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I always found him fascinating. I found him fascinating when I first saw him in the person of Ted Ross, who originated the role. Yeah, let's talk about the aesthetic. What did he look like? What? How did they design him? Well, he looked. How would I say? It was kind of like a cutaway tux, meaning the costume hmm. brought into being a lion suit, because it really was a cutaway jacket. Okay. But of course, you had the mane, which was here, which was part of the jacket. Yeah. Then you had the wig, which picked into the, into the, uh, into the, the hair on the jacket. The, yeah. So it was a whole thing. The only thing out on me was my face. Wow. Everything else was covered up. Gloves, boom, boom, boom. And just as a footnote, when I did it, the costuming was 
whatever they made up in 75, but it was carpet material. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> it was literally like a like a like a carpet material, sort of a, a rough woven thing. It gets and a little boots. toasty in there. Well, it got very toasty. I started getting what they called uh, poisoning, which was all your sweat goes back into your glands because it has nowhere to go. Oh, no, because yeah. it's not absorbing. Toxic, into toxic. That. Yeah, it's not absorbing. And after a point, the suit was sopping wet, right? Of course. So all the sweat just started going back into your pores. And I was like, I wonder why I'm feeling so weird. And that's when I went to the doctor. They said, you have toxic poison because all of your sweat that you're excreting, if you will, is going, going back right into back your body. In. <gasps> and it's toxic. Wow. Hello. So they went in and they took put mesh underneath the main here, which was already a zip up thing of the carpet. They mm-hmm. took it away and they put mesh underneath that. So that was breathing. Breathing. Yeah. They yeah. put a arm things underneath the arm with mesh because you never really, you know, nobody cared if they could see, but yeah. it gave your body a chance to breathe, please. Wow. And it made all the difference because then the sweat had somewhere to go. It was oh amazing. Goodness. And the other thing was the way the show was designed, the lion crawled on his knees a lot. Now, I had two pairs of knee warmers, and there was knee warmers made into the pants, and knee uh, pads made into mm-hmm. the pants and so forth. But after a while, my knees were killing me. And at this time, I was 23 or something, you know. So, again, I went to the doctor, and then they confessed to me that Ted Ross, while he was doing the show, had to have his knees drained once a week. <sighs> <laughs> no yes why are we why are we torturing ourselves well i then started to have i had to have sonic treatments you know the little smooth yeah. thingy they do and you could figure when it hit the spot where the pain was so i had to have sonic treatments and so forth so when i finally left the show that was the reason i said you know i'm just killing and the last visit i went to the doctor they said well you have permanent knee damage But you won't feel it until you're older because your body is resilient. Now you're younger and it will probably heal a bit. It will Mm -hmm. never heal all the way because nobody's meant to do that. (laughs) And so I went to them at a point, especially when I went back into the show, but it happened before then. And I said, look, this is the deal. This is what the doctor said. I now know that Ted Ross had to have his knees drained once a week. And the doctor has told me I already have permanent knee damage. So I either get up (laughs) Or I get out, you know. <laughs> and they said, well, we don't want you to leave. I said, well, then, we'll, you know, I'll do a little something, something here and there. But yeah. basically, I have to stand up now. And so it was funny because friends of mine, you know, played the lion later, my good friend, George Bell. And he always, we joke, he says, I liberated the lion. <laughs> got them off their knees. They got them off their knees. They wow. Everybody who did it had the same malady, you know. And finally, it was like, that looks great, but you're killing the people playing this part. My and after that, nobody had to crawl anymore. Oh, wow. Good for you. Way yes. to liberate the lion. Liberate the lion. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as the character, which I know is what you really, I feel that the lion, I mean, we already know what he was by definition of the story. Mm-hmm. The idea, well, that's what makes be a lion and I'll say it, you know, go from front back to front. It makes it such a powerful number in the show because what she's saying to him is you have it within you Mm. to be brave. Mm -hmm. That doesn't come across quite the same way in the original stories. It's like he finally fights the Winkies or whatever he does and he proves himself to have courage. But in The Wiz, she tells him, you know, you have everything you need 
to be strong. You're the bravest of them all, you know, you know. And when he takes that energy from her and then sings his part of the song, it's one of the most powerful things I have ever experienced because you really have to take it. And it's not just do it, boom. You have to do the arc in that small amount of time. You have to go from crawling, you know, being afraid, all the things she, you know, when she's singing to you, you're still afraid of the thunder and the things. Mm -hmm. And then you slowly stand. I'm standing strong and tall. And then you with that, you do. And it's just glorious. It's glorious. Because I think, again, this is maybe I'm laying too much into it, but in the African-American community, the women have had to be often the ones to empower the men. Because going all the way back to slavery, they were given more latitude, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it was the women who made the men who restored or instilled or whatever you want to call it, the idea to the men, the black men, that they were strong, they were kings, they were the bravest, because nothing else in their existence was telling them that. Yeah. Everything was, you know, undercutting and, and completely telling them the opposite. So you had the idea of this little girl, little African-American girl telling this man, you're a king, yes. you know. Well, and when you have the lion who... Essentially, it has an afro, right? Yeah. You hear this little girl say, be a lion, but you're also hearing her say, be a black man and be proud of it. Yeah, be proud of who you are. And you yeah. have it already. Yeah. You've been taught to think you don't have it. Mm. You've been made to think you don't have it. Yeah. You've been treated as though you don't have it. Yeah. But I'm telling you, you do have it. And isn't that interesting? Because... That is ultimately the lesson that she has to learn for herself and how easy yeah. it is, right, for us to see it in other people before we Absolutely. get, we get well, the message. Well, that's always the beauty of the Wizard of Oz, the Wiz, is that the illustration of all of her thing in Oz was all about her. Mm. She needed courage. She needed the brain. She needed the heart. And all the things that she got with her friends along the road were all things that, were, that she needed. And, and we're already there. We're already there. Other great moments uh, with the lion. He gets arrested for yes. play, for playing with the poppies, which ob yes. obviously, you know, I mean, the metaphor is not lost there. Right. In, in terms of uh, opium. <laughs> I love it. Well, that was another moment I always talk about choreographically. That was so brilliant. I mean, for them to be dressed as poppies. Yes. You know what I mean? And then yes. to come out and to make the metaphor that they were, quote unquote, I guess you could call it, whatever they were, they were peddling you know, it's what something. he needed, yeah. something. <laughs> and I always loved him when they'd walk around the line and he would go, oh, mama, you know, and they'd walk <laughs> around and then the one would walk up to him and go, and blow and the dust blow right in. in his face and he would just go oh yes. <laughs> you know and that wonderful music that you never get to hear because it's you know but there was a wonderful uh uh, uh underscoring to that scene that was part of the choreography mm. that was just the best you know mm. it was really so cool and then when the the uh, field mice the police officers mousifers come the mousifers yeah it's like well you're high we're arresting you and he's like right. no 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 wait i you're like no. no this is not how this was I supposed had nothing to, to do with it I didn't right do it. you know it's a great i love always love that moment next thing i mean we all know the story of the wizard of oz right so we're just kind of going through these beats but yeah i i think that one of the other important things is when they finally do get to to emerald city yeah um obviously looking for the wizard of oz because that's how dorothy's gonna find her way home they get there and in the original production it, it seems to me and correct me if i'm wrong that the whole vibe 
of Emerald City is ballroom scene, kind of the underground ballroom scene, which has always been about elitism, right? Let them eat cake. Let the, you know, it always felt like they're playing at the highest class you could yeah, possibly I would agree with that. Reach. And I think just to put it in perspective, I yes. don't know. I'm, there was certainly the kings and queens and courts and things back in 75. Mm-hmm. But the ballroom scene as we know it now was not part of the world. Was not yet. there yet. Interesting. Not okay. really. There was a scene, but it wasn't that scene. The real mm. ballroom that we know now really came into being like the probably, 80s. yeah, into the 80s, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, it was there, but it had a different, it's like when you see the movie Paris is Burning. Yes, of course. And you see the older people, Doreen Corey and Pepper mm-hmm. LaBeige, you know, when yeah. they started, it wasn't really what it wasn't the a thing to sure. and they talk about that she says these divas now would know a ballroom if it came up and hit them in the face <laughs> because when they did it it was a different kind of thing right, it right, became right. something else so anyway interesting but what jeffrey always said or at least i heard him say in rehearsals to the emerald city citizens to what you were saying which i think was correct he says you know you have to understand you are the ultimate you live in a place that only the most fabulous people get to be. This was my favorite image. He says, your shoes are too good to touch the floor. Ooh, that's a great note. Isn't that a great note and a great image? Because the number as it was staged was like, come in, come in. This is beautiful. We love you. And then it was like, whap, with the fans. How with the fans. Dare, exactly. How dare you look upon me? You know, and the whole idea was, yes, we're fabulous and we can invite you in, but only if we invite you in. Mm. First of all, let's just say we probably up until then had never seen African-Americans presented in that way in a show. Right. That they were the ultimate. They weren't trying to get to be. They were the ultimate. So when you got into Emerald City, these people and I always loved that their costuming was a little otherworldly. It's not somewhere you're imagining that you've been. It's somewhere you've never been. Wow. It's so not, not it was, even aspirational because you haven't, no, you don't even never, know what it is. You've never seen anything as magnificent as the Emerald City. That's where the awe comes from. If it's just a pastel take on the hip hop club, well, that's what you know. You know what mm. I mean? We, we know. So even as the audience, you had to create, in my opinion, like they did in the original, you had to create a world that none of us have seen. Wow. Therefore, if I may lead into the whiz, is the ultimate version of whatever any of that is. The buildup, right? The buildup for the, build the entrance up. of this guy. Or or And one. you think if yeah. And you think if they're that, the the Emerald City citizens are that ultra, as we used to call it, you know, <laughs> then the whiz has to be even more that. Right. 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 And that's why I think the the realization of him as he is in the show was so brilliant, because when you saw him again, like the 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 oddness of the Emerald City citizens, there was something also in Andre's performance, especially there was something robotic about him Mm. in the way that he did it. You weren't you knew he was a real person and all. And of course, that white suit that spit him like fit him like they'd sprayed it on. It was gorgeous. <laughs> and the cape and the whole thing. But there was something about the way he spoke and moved that you weren't sure if he was mechanical or real. Wow. And that echoes what in the Wizard of Oz film, of course, you see the big head and yeah. the fire and all that. So and he in the is Wiz- manufactured to a certain degree, right? Exactly. He has created himself. That is right. So he's created an image 
to make them all fear him and to make them all revere him and all of that. When in actuality, as you see later, he's just a guy from Kansas with rollers in his hand, trying to get, <laughs> get rid of, you know, I always loved that, that you caught him in his pajamas with rollers in his hair. It was very James Brown, you know, <laughs> with rollers in his hair and caught. It was like, I'm not what that thing at all, yeah. you know? That's so cool. I I have to say real fast that the only times I've honestly been able to see The Wiz in person have been high school productions. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but that's just how it's always panned out. And um, I always feel for the poor young kid who's like, (laughs) who comes out and is like, you wanted to meet The Wizard. The Wizard. Like, yes. Good good try, buddy. Good try. You're killing it. And also that's one of the roles in The Wiz (laughs) That's a maybe a little beyond the reach unless it's a very mature. Right. Oh, absolutely. You know, because what he is in essence is not something the kid would, you know, could necessarily could really and it's not obvious. It's not obvious. You know. Well, he gives them a mission, right? That he will help them if they kill the Wicked Witch Eveline. of the West, yeah. right? Which we've already talked about, Eveline. What an interesting character who has enslaved an entire population, yet she is the one who's like, don't bring me bad news, right? right. I mean, just right. the audacity of this woman. And also, we love Eveline. <laughs> well, you so, always love a villain, so you, that, But, but you know. even still, like, the one song that they had created for The Wizard of Oz was Jitterbug, right? Which ultimately got cut and they they put it into the stage version of the wizard of oz but like that's never going to give you the kind of uh, audience reaction that uh, no bad news is going to give you. Oh no! Not you know at what all. I mean? Like, well, she... it's, it was coming from a different sensibility. The jitterbug yes. when we did it at Madison Square Garden, it was in. Oh my gosh! Okay, wait. I, I I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you were in the Madison Square Garden production. Yes, I didn't know that, Ken. I'm so sorry. What did oh. you do in it? Well, of course, the Cowboy Line. You're kidding. (gasps) No, I did it at Madison Square Garden twice. The first season that we did it, when they did it the first, it was was a bring over from Paper Mill Playhouse. They had done it there. And they did it at Madison Square Garden. And the first production, Roseanne Barr, Mm -hmm. Roseanne starred as the Wicked Witch. Right. And then the, she next time around, it was such a big hit and everybody loved it. They said, well, let's do it again. And the next time Eartha Kitt played the Wicked Witch of the come West. On, come and on. Mickey Rooney played the wizard. The so antics, it was like this. The antics well, of it all. Well, it was like a reach back to, of course, Mickey Rooney gave you thoughts of Judy Garland and sure. MGM. And it, it was this really wonderful, you know. And when How you saw fantastic. Eartha Kitt, you thought, well, of course. Uh, duh. You know, and it yes. was a completely different, obviously, interpretation, but it was yet the right interpretation. <laughs> you haven't lived until Eartha Kitt says, give me those shoes. You know, <laughs> I adored her. Not only her, but in the role, because she could do that. Oh you know, she God. could actually embody that. So it was an interesting thing in bringing, we're talking about Eveline and the Wiz. Yes. It brought some of that to the mm. Wizard of Oz, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. I totally see um, that. Yeah. So you got, yeah, no bad news, great, great number. Uh, unfortunately, she dies pretty quickly. Uh, the the water gets thrown on her, and so then they go back to the wizard, who they then discover, like you said, in curlers and in his pajamas. Right. This scene is so great. It's probably one of my favorite book scenes in the whole show. Is this right. this moment where the wizard kind of reveals who he actually is and what he right. came from, and the opportunities that he seized? Well, I think 
caught two things over. If you he, as you said, landed there, right. so they thought he was a god, mm-hmm. you know, exactly, and treated him as such. But as we know, which again is a sort of societal echo, when you're pretending to be something you're not, it's a huge burden mm. that you have to keep up all the time. Like he says, I'm in here alone. You know, I'm never ever not putting on it. The only time I can not do it is when I'm by myself, you know, mm-hmm. other than that, nobody knows who I really am. That's so, I mean, it's such a nuanced, interesting idea of take advantage of the opportunities you're given, but also know that with that, you still have to answer to yourself, right? You well, you still- always have to answer to yourself. Yeah. And even though you've come all the way to the wizard to find this information, it's the only thing that really matters. I mean, it's just gorgeous. So the song is the thing, isn't it? It's, the, I think, one of the only things, if not the only thing, that's actually sung twice. Yeah, probably. I think because right. that is the message of the whole show. Believe in yourself. Like you're saying, it's this uh, community of, of people who are passing the same message back and forth because we all kind of need to hear it from each other. And isn't that community? You know what that's I mean? That's community. Exactly. That's fantastic. So... The Wiz gives that message to Dorothy. The Scarecrow, the Lion, the Tin Man all realize their own strength and power. And then Dorothy gets this great scene with Glinda in which she hears that message once again, right? Exactly. That believe in yourself. And then that's when home happens. Yeah. What a great second act. Yeah. I always loved Ada Pearl because she's the first one in a sense. She doesn't say quite the message, but the idea when she, I just loved when she says, sweet thing, let me tell you about the world and the way things are. <laughs> that alone is a big statement right in the top for That's Dorothy. True. This is not, I'm not going to give you some, you know, I'm going to tell you. We're not going to sugarcoat it. No. Sweet thing, let me tell you about the world and the way things are. Uh, I know you've come from a different place and I know you travel far. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you how it is. Because she's the one who summons Glenda, if we remember in The Wiz. Mm-hmm. She says, oh, that's, that's right, I'm going to do it. She goes, wait a minute. I hear you. She says, that's Glenda. That's Glenda's theme song. <laughs> and it's such a great moment when all the saw that beautiful creation of Jeffrey Hogan's with all those beautiful colors and so forth. Well, because Ada Pearl's magic hasn't been working pretty much the entire show, right? And right. then she finally she finally is able to summon Glenda. And- right. Right. What? And these, isn't that all interesting? These characters are so oh, great. So great. Ah. And also you think of her, I always thought of her as like this this aunt that you might have, not mm-hmm. Aunt M, but another aunt, who's, you know, she means well. And but in the end, she's the one who set her on the road to her discovery. Wow, you're exactly right. You know, why you think, well, you know, in the movie, in the story, of course, it's Glinda, but in the books, there is an Ada Pearl of a sort. You know, mm-hmm. there's another witch that we never took. We never East actually get to. Yeah, yeah so, south, some directional. South. Yeah, some <laughs> directional witch. Uh, but she's the one who sets her on her road. You know, the yellow brick road will take you where you need to go. So right away, she's the one who really sets her on her discovery. Um. This has been so wonderful, Ken. Thank you so much. I I, I love episodes where I feel like I've been to church, uh, because <laughs> because I do feel like that's what theater can be for us. Right? Absolutely. Well, I'm I've always felt, uh, and not from a religious place, but from a spiritual place, other than where people gather to worship, no matter what their religious beliefs are. Sure. The theater is the only thing akin to that. 
And I, I think mean. that was modeled more after the theater than the other way around. You know what I mean? <laughs> absolutely. And Thank absolutely. you. The proscenium 100%. and the, you know, all of that was there, you know, before they started doing Long time stuff. before. But I do believe that when you gather in the theater, it's a sacred space and you communicate something from players to audience that is absolutely sacred. It doesn't matter what the show is or what it's about. There's a communication of spirit exchange that goes on in the live theater that is a human thing. It just absolutely is. And you see shows that you come out and you've got chills and goosebumps and things. And it isn't, the show is great, the performers are terrific, but it's something that happens between the audience and the performers that gives you the real thrill of it. And it's sacred. I always have believed it's sacred. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at a musical podcast and be sure to subscribe to Patreon exclamation point for only $1 a month. You get exclusive content and bonus episodes. Also, we have a tea public store with brand new designs. There are so many ways to feel part of this beautiful podcast community that I am so grateful for. Hey, Mr. Ken Page, how do we follow you and what's coming up for you? Well, you know, I'm not fancy. Just look up Ken Page on Facebook. Or something. I'm one of those basic people. I don't have all the other fancy things. But I will say this for anybody in podcast land who's near New York City, I will be at Studio Studio. Listen, shows you at my age at 54 below on May the 4th at 730. It's a makeup show. I was supposed to be there last September, but COVID prevented that from happening, blah, blah, blah. But I'm going to be there May 4th, and I don't know when I'll be doing it again, and I'm just going to say that. So if you can get there, please, please, please come. Uh One show, one night only. Come on, big baby, come on. (laughs) And we'll be there (laughs) just for you. Thank you. And we'll be there, and I hope people can come. That's fantastic. Everybody... Go support Mr. Ken Page. What an incredible honor to have you on the show. What incredible talent and career. And uh, so grateful for you, listeners. Until next time, please remember to commune a Kate. I've stolen it, Ken. I stole it. You're welcome to it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.